Thought Leadership from PwC. Welcome to PwC's Accounting Podcast. I'm Heather Horn. Today, we're continuing our special ESG Industry Insights mini-series, coming to you each Wednesday for the next few weeks. In this series of episodes, we're going to take a stroll through the neighborhood of different industries to gain an understanding of the unique challenges and opportunities that companies face in each business sector as they work through implementing and reporting on their ESG priorities. Last week, we kicked it off with Coast Casey Herman, PwC's US ESG leader. And this week, Casey's back to talk real estate. I think business leaders got to look at this to say, you know, this can be a self-funding or even a value-creating proposition. You know, buildings, most buildings are, they're, they're built to last. Buildings are built for 50 plus years and over 80% of our, of our uh, buildings that we have, the, the, the infrastructure we have today is over 20 years old. So, so solving the emissions problem and, solve, and creating that ROI that, that you mentioned, uh, it means having solutions for existing buildings. We have to know what operational levers we can pull, what capital levers we can pull, um, how we can change how a building operates, what retrofits are needed uh, in order to be able to create, create that ROI. That's a, that's a great reason why real estate uh, is aligned with some of these emissions reductions goals because of the bottom line savings potential that exists. Those are our guests, Dan Sullivan and Randy Huff, partners in PwC's real estate practice. Dan and Randy will give us the inside scoop on what's driving ESG results in the real estate industry. From customer demand for green buildings to how sustainability-linked financing is enabling real estate enhancements, Dan and Randy do a great job of getting quickly to the most relevant issues facing the industry. And since we all use real estate, there's something in this episode for everyone. So with that, let's get started. Dan, Randy, thank you all for joining us today. I, uh, I, I've been able to keep an eye on some of the things that you're doing with your clients in the real estate sector around ESG and sustainability and decarbonization. And it's fascinating work and I'm, I'm eager to hear more about it. And I know that our guests and clients listening in are going to want to hear more about some of the um, observations that you have working with clients in, in the sector. Uh, and it is a broad ranging sector, uh, both in terms of size of company, complexity of company, and obviously geographically. So uh, uh, looking forward to a, a very interesting conversation. So Dan, as, as one of the leaders of our real estate financial markets practice, um, what, what, are, what are some of the trends that you're seeing your clients most focused on these days? And hopefully uh, ESG will certainly be one of those. Yeah, well, ESG is top of mind uh, all across, and particularly at the C-suite level. And what what I'll sort of start with actually is the financial market side of this. We're we're in the early stages still of forming the right financial products to support this entire transition process, where ESG is uh, an important area for companies to be investing in. So, uh, really, what we're we're asking this question about is what is the most efficient way for for capital to meet the demand to support companies making positive changes with an ESG overlay to it, and 
there's some good things coming out in the markets. The, the, the fairly quickly seeing growing products and sustainable sustainability linked loans and sustainable bonds, uh, green bonds and, and, and other forms of financing. But it's really important for that to come together because that capital is what actually allows for the real change to happen on the hard assets, uh, particularly in the real estate space. So, Overall, what we're seeing right now is, is that there has been a, a strong tipping point, particularly from European investors, um, really demanding more out of companies. So companies that require European capital are, are really expected to step up. And, uh, we're starting to see that pressure to build sort of in the, uh, in the U.S. ecosystem as well at this stage. Dan, are you seeing a difference in the cost of capital depending upon um, the reactions and the responses that, that real estate companies are taking? No, I'm not seeing a direct difference in the cost of capital outside of some of these these instruments are being uh, set up in a way where you can get a positive benefit by uh, achieving certain targets. So the capital itself may be sort of in line with what you expect for just similar credit risk associated with the instrument, but uh, successful outcomes, we are seeing investors are willing to give some of that back uh, in order to fund and incentivize the right behaviors. Got it. Okay. And let's uh, we'll, we'll circle back on that a little bit a little bit later. So, R- Randy, um, uh, you know broadly, how are real estate companies thinking about ESG? ESG covers a broad range of topics, uh, and, and certainly environmental and emissions are getting the most attention publicly these days. But there's a lot more to it than that. So, at a, at a high level, what are the kinds of things that the executives you're working with are thinking about? Uh, yeah, Casey, thanks. Um, so if we start at the high level and, and think about the E, think about uh, the E part of ESG, that means emissions and climate. And I go back to 2015, the Paris, Paris Climate Agreement, and the goal there was to limit global warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius compared to pre-industrial levels. And recently, the UN Secretary General, General said that we're on a pathway to more than double that limit. So this is a major concern. Uh, and the primary driver is greenhouse gas emissions. Uh, they're up since 2010 across all sectors. The models say we need to be at net zero by 2050, but it's not like we can wake up in 2050 and 28 years from now and flip a switch. We have to show progress along the way. Real estate is a huge contributor to greenhouse gases. 38% of all greenhouse gases come from construction, residential, non-residential, That must mean in real estate, commercial real estate, we must make significant changes if we're going to make the 2050 goal. And and the nice thing about real estate is, hey, we're all in it together. So every business, every individual, uh, we're all involved in real estate as an owner or an occupier, a tenant or a landlord. So it's not somebody else's problem. We got to solve the climate problem together, uh, regardless of our role, It's whether we're in facilities or HR or sales. So all of those are important. Uh, emissions, the E part, can be quantified at the building level um, by measuring gas and electricity, but social and governance aspects are, are, uh, are tougher to track. Businesses are thinking about human rights, labor management, and how decision-making occurs, diversity metrics, revenue, employee satisfaction. One of my favorite S metrics is around employee wellness, and we can think about employee wellness from the lens of, of air quality and thermal comfort and lighting levels. There's some great tools and frameworks to assess performance in these areas, uh, especially whenever we think about wellness, we think about bringing employees back to the office. Uh, and that highlights some of the complementary nature of the E, the S, and the G. Yeah. Hey, if I could jump in on that, Randy, one 
one thing that I've had to change my thinking around is that, you know, you used to think about the real estate sector and companies that invest a lot in sort of different real estate related uh, equity products or owning buildings. You know, when we think about this, we're really thinking about anybody who happens to own or occupy large amounts of large square footage amounts of real estate. So you may be a large corporation and real estate isn't your core business, but you may occupy uh, 10 million square feet of real estate. And, and because of that, that's, that's also part of that company's problem to think about how that square footage uh, needs to be modified, addressed for their own uh, targets and goals to meet net zero type commitments. Yeah, absolutely, Dan. And whenever you're talking about targets and goals, uh, the thing that comes to my mind from my past experience is there's always been so much variation in how uh, energy and emissions were measured. What's included in scope? How much square footage is, is out of scope? Um, one of the recent changes, though, that's solving that is around science-based targets. Uh, so a lot of real estate firms are adopting science-based targets these days uh, to have a standardized approach to measurement, to have a standardized approach around uh, how they can track reductions consistently, and they're in line with the Paris Agreement. So uh, science-based target adoption by real estate companies is really accelerating globally. I was just on their website um, recently, and 170 global real estate firms have now signed up for science-based targets, uh, and that's quadrupled over the past two years. So, uh, And some of the largest firms, some of the leading firms are the ones that are uh, leading the charge with science-based targets. Uh, a little plug for PwC, we also have signed up for science-based targets, and we're going to be net zero by 2030. Um, so science-based targets are where it's at, and it's how we have that right measurement, regardless of portfolio size. Yeah, and Randy, just as background, <clears throat> a science-based target is a target that not only does the absolute reduction in emissions meet the 1.5 Paris Accord goal, but the trajectory of the reduction of emissions is planned to meet that goal. So, you know, if you back-end load those reductions, you you may... Uh, reduce your chance of hitting the 1.5 degree um, pre-industrial temperature change. But if you get you know, halfway there by 2030 and the rest of the way there by 2050, um, that, that furthers your goal. And there is a not-for-profit organization, an NGO called Science-Based Targets Initiatives. And they certify companies' targets as being in alignment with the Paris Accord. Um, as we prepared for this, for this podcast, uh, I, I got to tell you, I was surprised that 170 real estate firms have submitted SBTI goals. Um, I think that's a relatively high number compared to other industries. And it really shows the commitment that the industry has to meeting those goals. Um, uh, and and it, you know, it, it's walking the walk, uh, not just talking the talk. So uh, it is it is aspirational. And, 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 you know, a quadrupling in two years is quite a... Uh, a significant lean-in by the industry. Yeah, Casey, you're you're right. I think real estate is definitely leaning in. Uh, it's it's the right thing to do uh, for sure. But there's there's a few other reasons why I think real estate is leaning in and why science-based targets are, are so important. Um, from my standpoint, there's really three reasons why why this is the right time for real estate. The first one is is valuation. So real estate companies are seeing that green buildings are just worth more. Uh, if a building's LEED certified, it's going to command a between 7 and 10% higher rental premium, uh, higher sales premium. Uh, and, and the reason is higher ESG performance attracts more selective, more stable tenants. Uh, they want green buildings. 
Uh, they're willing to pay for those green buildings. Tenants want quality and green buildings mean quality. So I think it, it's nicely aligned first because of value, second because of operational cost. So electricity, gas, and water, the core utilities in a building, they account for about a third of a building's total operating cost. You know, a commercial building may spend between two and three dollars per square foot per year to heat and cool and provide water. Uh, and that price is going up, uh, driven by natural gas prices. We're seeing price increases, you know, from 15 to 30 percent this year uh, on the electricity side. So the best way to uh, hedge against that inflation is to reduce the amount of consumption. And that also drives a, a reduction in scope one and scope two emissions. The third thing that I would touch on behind valuation and operational cost is, is regulation. So uh, this is a major driver. Uh, Dan mentioned it earlier. Europe is probably five years ahead of the rest of the world when it comes to regulation. So we can here in the U.S., we can see where we're headed. Uh, we're seeing regulation coming from two primary areas. Uh, first of all, for public companies, uh, the SEC's proposed rules uh, on climate disclosure touch on a couple of key areas. First of all, scope one and scope two, greenhouse gas emissions. Second of all, scope three emissions, if they're material or if a commitment has been made previously. And then thirdly, the climate risks associated with the business uh, in line with TCFD. Um, so the SEC and, and regulation is a big piece of, uh, of the driver. But also state and local regulation is, is catching up. Uh, there's 40, over 40 cities and states in the U.S. that now have some sort of local law around building performance standards for reporting energy and emissions and electrification. Probably the most famous is New York's Local Law 97. So it passed in 2019 and it requires buildings that are over 25,000 square feet uh, to meet energy and greenhouse gas emissions uh, uh, limits by 2024. So the goal is to reduce uh, emissions from real estate in New York by 40% by 2030 and 80% by 2050. I love this because it drives innovation. It drives people to think differently uh, and it drives action. So I think this trend that, that's uh, sweeping the nation uh, is only going to continue. So Randy, there's a lot to unpack there. So let me... Uh... Let me break that discussion into a couple of components. So first of all, in the SEC rulemaking, uh, I'm sure most of our listeners are aware of this, but the SEC issued some proposed rules on climate change disclosures, uh, very comprehensive rule, over 510 pages, that essentially requires three things. It requires, uh, as you mentioned, a TCFD-based discussion about climate change risks that face a business. But included in that are some specific disclosures about um, asset risks. So looking at your portfolio assets and which ones of those are most susceptible to um, severe weather events, either acute or, or ongoing. Um, and then also transition risk. And I think the example you used of the uh, New York Local Law 97 is a transition risk. If, if local jurisdictions are going to require changes to their assets, that's going to require investment. That's going to require potentially portfolio management. And those transitions to a cleaner economy can have an impact. Um, on, on the asset side, are, are we working with many clients so far to help them understand uh, the, the, the risks that their different assets face based upon their geospatial locations? 
Yes, absolutely. It's it's uh, dealing, addressing climate risk, addressing uh, SEC reporting, having uh, high quality data is those are the most common requests that that we get these days. Um, so we spend a lot of time with clients helping them address physical and, and transition risks as well as as well as the uh, emissions side of it. You know, one, one of the things we do a fair amount of work with clients is, is location strategy when they're thinking about building a new headquarters or putting uh, putting significant capital into some uh, sort of new uh, new building. And there's a lot of questions that you ask, you know, is it in the right location for uh, commuting from my target market of the employees I want to hire? Is it in the right location if I need logistics and access to trains and ports and all sorts of things? Well, geospatial data variables can answer all that, but that really has expanded now to say, what's my climate risk? And so, you know, four or five years ago, people aren't asking us that question when they're making those decisions, Casey, but that's absolutely uh, uh, on the list now that has to be answered before any large capital expenditures made on, on real estate. And I think one of the things we found is those computations are an iterative process, and it takes a year or two to really uh, get a good view of, of what your portfolio looks like as you bounce it against potential climate change scenarios. So I think we would urge our clients to get, especially our publicly traded clients that will have to comply with this SEC rule if it is passed to, to start that process because it will take a, a bit of time. Um, the other two things that the rule requires is, Randy, as you mentioned, disclosure of scope one and two emissions. Um, and the rule as proposed requires those emissions to be essentially audited by an independent um, attestation provider. Uh, it also requires disclosure of scope three emissions, although those would not be audited and they would be subject to a safe harbor provision because of the uh, subjectivity and the estimation of those, of those emissions. And they're only required to be disclosed if a company has either made a pledge to reduce their scope three emissions publicly or if they've concluded that those scope three emissions are material. And of course, where this gets tricky is they haven't really defined, you know, the SEC um, hasn't quite defined what material means in terms of volume of emissions. Uh, but that that's going to be um, a, a good bit of work for companies. And, and then the third thing that the rule requires is a new footnote disclosure in the financial statements that would disclose the impact of the historical financial statements of climate change events. And it strikes me that real estate can be particularly subject to that if you have real estate in an area that perhaps is subject to flooding or, or fires or um, unusual and severe weather events. So uh, thinking about how are you gonna gather that foot that information to disclose in a footnote if it's passed um, is gonna be important. Um, I'll just note that um, this proposed rule got the highest number of comment letters from respondents in the SEC's history. There were 14,000 comment letters, over 14,000. Now, that's a little misleading because 10,000 of those were form letters. Uh, there were a series of different form letters that were submitted over and over and over. Uh, about 3,000 of those were from individuals that didn't provide a lot of commentary. Uh, and that boils down to 1,000 letters from registrants, from investors, from trade organizations, academics, um, other government agencies that provided substantive comments. Um, what were 
Was there any trend that you all saw in the real estate industry's comments as they replied to the SEC? Yeah, uh, Casey, there there absolutely was. I think overall, the real estate industry is uh, is generally supportive uh, of of the uh, of the requirements of the disclosure, but there were a few consistent areas of concern as we reviewed the comment letters. Uh, the first one that I would touch on is, is around scope three emissions. So, uh, just from a quick definition standpoint, scope one emissions in real estate, that's the direct on-site energy that a building consumes. And most commonly, that would be natural gas that's used to, to heat the building. Scope two is the indirect energy that's uh, created somewhere else, but it's consumed at the building level. So that would most commonly be electricity. Um, and scope one and scope two are easily measured uh, um, because we've got metering in place in most instances. But scope yeah, although, Randy, scope two is not so easy because you don't necessarily know the carbon content of the electricity in all of the locations where your buildings are at. So it, it is still much more of an estimate and a modeled amount than really a measurement. It can. That's exactly right. In the mix of renewable versus non-renewable, on-site versus um, off-site renewables, uh, there's, there's, met, there's conversion factors and e-grid factors and other things you can use, but, but fundamentally it's not as direct as, as it should be. But scope three is where it really gets tricky. Um, scope three emissions aren't directly owned or controlled at the property, but they're connected to the value chain. And there's 15 categories of scope three emissions um, that, that can be included. Just some examples. If you're a developer of a building, uh, the construction materials that are used in the building, that, that's, uh, that's a source of scope three. That's embodied carbon. Uh, if you own a building and you have tenants who are creating emissions, that's part of your scope. They're, they're, the tenant emissions are part of your scope three. If you have employees who are commuting to an office location, the, uh, uh, the emissions from that commute is, is included in scope three. In commercial real estate, 85 to 90 percent of the total emissions pie comes from scope three emissions. Uh, and they're the hardest to measure. They're the hardest to get your arms around. They're the hardest to reduce. So the real estate industry, the, a consistent theme in the comment letters was uh, to push back on the uh, scope three reporting, either limiting the boundaries uh, of what scope three could be included or excluded, uh, maybe making scope three voluntary, you only report on it if you, know, if you voluntarily do it, or asking for scope three to be completely removed. That was probably the most common comment that, that I saw in, in the letters. Uh, you know, a couple other quick ones. Uh, a couple, there, were, there were comments around the time frame for reporting uh, asking to delay the initial reporting an additional year or two, uh, so that was that that was common. And then there was some uh, requests for changing of the timing, um, as as it relates to uh, firms can include estimates of their emissions in their in their 10K and then true that up with actuals later in the year. There were comments about having it just being a single uh, a single report that comes out. And then the last concerns were related to cost, um, the cost, the complexity, the materiality levels, as, as you mentioned, Casey, all of that was brought up as being potentially too expensive, especially if you're a smaller organization. So those were some of the pushbacks. But as I said, overall, real estate was was generally supportive of of the uh, of the new requirements. And there was a great diversity among industries. And from what I've read, real estate was one of the more generally supportive with with suggestions on how to make the rule more operationally functional. 
Um, and it really highlights, I mean, this discussion really highlights some of the complexities. Just a note to our listeners, PwC has multiple podcasts and webcasts about the SEC proposed rules on climate change with much more detail about the requirements, as well as some comments that we've uh, uh, put you know some comments about our own comment letter that that are available. So I'd urge you to to look at our feed if you have an interest in more of those, uh, understanding more of those uh, requirements. Um, we understand that the SEC is still committed to trying to issue a final rule before the midterm elections in the fall. Don't know if they'll be able to meet that goal or not, given the large volume of comments comment letters received that they have to anticipate or have to analyze when considering uh, how to amend the proposed rule into a final rule. But uh, but there does seem to be a great deal of energy behind this. Um, let me pivot a little bit. You, you mentioned the New York Local Law 97 that talked about decarbonization requirements for New York City real estate. Um, Tell us a little bit more about what that rule requires, both in terms of action and, and efforts to decarbonize the operations of those buildings, and also what sort of reporting is required to, to whoever is monitoring that rule. And what are other jurisdictions doing? I think, in, in like in many things, New York City tends to be a little bit out in front on these topics, and they are here, but they're not, they're not the only one proposing these types of rules. That, that's right. Um, so I think that the big transition that these local, uh, local rules for uh, performance benchmarking and reporting uh, all have in common is it's a transition from voluntary reporting to mandatory reporting. Um, so it's, it's uh, reporting things like energy use per square foot. It's reporting things like carbon intensity, which is the amount of carbon uh, uh, emissions per square foot. And it's uh, driving changes to building like whole building electrification, completely removing all of the uh, fossil fuel burning uh, devices from a building and converting those uh, to, to electrification. So uh, that's the primary change that we're seeing. And the nice thing, the, 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 the unique thing, the commonality between all of them is they all use the same reporting database. Uh, Energy Star has been around for uh, 20 plus years. Energy Star has a building ratings program and they have a database called Portfolio Manager. So Portfolio Manager is the foundation of all of this local regulation. It's, it's the source uh, of, uh, for, for all of the local regulation and the reporting that's, that's happening today. So the nice thing, all 40 cities and states are using the same common platform uh, for reporting and benchmarking and comparison uh, and using some of the EPA standards for that. So I, I love seeing that. Yeah, I was just going to jump in on one point that, that Randy made that I think is important and, and can sometimes get lost because we think about all the reporting that has to be done out of this and the infrastructure to create the reporting is is like, what what's, you know, I think you asked the question earlier, like, why why should they do this? You know, and why should they be focused on buildings? I mean, I, I, I as a business leader, they also need to really think about the ROI that's available to them. Um, and, you know, being a capital markets guy, I think about how do you fund these problems, but if you have the ability to improve upon the value of your building, well, there's a potential way to extract that value, either through sale or through 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 debt financing. Um, if you have the 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 ability to uh, make changes to reduce your energy consumption, well, you can measure the impact of that, and that's that's sort of a direct margin expansion for your business, which which creates 
real sort of bottom line value uh, for, for, for value creation for your company. And so in addition to sort of doing it because it's the right thing to bring down GHGs, you know, I think business leaders got to look at this to say, you know, this can be a self-funding or even a value creating proposition in the way that you attack this part of your GHG profile, which is different than potentially other parts of the business, um, which, which I find to be very interesting about how you think about the build environment. I, I love that, Dan. So, you know, buildings, most buildings are, they're, they're built to last. Buildings are built for 50 plus years and over 80% of our, of our uh, buildings that we have, the, the, the infrastructure we have today is over 20 years old. So, so solving the emissions problem and solve, and creating that ROI that, that you mentioned, uh, it means having solutions for existing buildings. We have to know what operational levers we can pull, what capital levers we can pull, um, how we can change how a building operates, what retrofits are needed uh, in order to be able to create, create that ROI. That's a, that's a great reason why real estate uh, is aligned with some of these emissions reductions goals because of the bottom line savings potential that exists. And Randy, that's really the practice that you're leading at this point, right? Is helping building owners or even tenants think about how do I harvest those efficiencies? Uh, absolutely, absolutely. And it starts with with having the right data. Uh, that that's the that's the place that that we start. Um, I was on a call with a CIO this morning, and we were talking about uh, tech enablement as it related to their. Uh, their portfolio of assets across the U.S., which were several thousand, uh, how they were having challenges aggregating the whole building data for electricity and gas and water, aggregating that across different asset types and lease structures. Uh, it, it's a big challenge, uh, but also a, a big opportunity. The, some of the largest equipment and, and energy companies in the country are focused on solving this challenge right now. Uh, but the market is still fragmented and, and there's, a, there's a huge opportunity for innovation and trying to capture that data in a new way, in a strategic way uh, that, that satisfies the SEC, but also creates opportunities for building owners to identify where the ROI improvements can happen. I know that there are a number of, of new financing vehicles out there to help owners of real estate and maybe even tenants uh, get the financing to make these changes. Can you talk a little bit about what you're seeing in terms of those sustainability or, or net zero linked financing instruments and green yeah. bonds? Sure, sure. So we're 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 seeing a plethora of options grow in the market. Um, one of the ones that's particularly interesting because it doesn't really put many constraints on the borrower is the sustainability linked loan and. Uh, that's that has grown in popularity significantly in Europe, and now it's really picking up in the U.S. Whereby, really, you're getting a general purpose loan, so it doesn't constrain you on exactly how you use it. You don't have the constraints of reporting exactly against how those proceeds were used, so you can use it for for how you want in your business. But you promise to make progress against uh, agreed upon KPIs. So you you determine and uh, with the the lender what's most important to you to make progress in any factor in ESG, and you set targets and you measure yourself against those targets. But it's not about connecting the proceeds to those targets. Um, 
we're really excited by that product because we think it creates the right sort of balance for flexibility for for corporations to use capital as they see fit, but hold them accountable uh, to the targets that they say that they can set over over a reasonable timeline. And then the way that I mentioned it earlier, the way that's constructed commonly is you get a benefit if you hit those targets. You may see that your 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 margin is actually reduced, and in certain cases, you also may have a penalty. So if you don't hit those, you actually end up paying a little bit more under debt financing. Um, we certainly see green bonds, but but we've seen sustainability link loans pick up in popularity over green bonds, uh, primarily for the reason I, I, I said before, which is when you have a green bond, that, that tends to focus on a project. So you really have to scope something out, and then you have to track those proceeds against the project and report against that, which creates a lot more constraints from an enterprise standpoint on how you use your capital. So it's a good product, but it's not always fit for purpose for how corporations like to use uh, the capital that they raise. And then we see other things still growing in the market, things like pace proceeds seeds, which is really driven through the municipalities, uh, encouraging uh, lending in a way that that largely operates as sort of a senior uh, lending facility uh, in the way that that's designed and collecting taxes. That one's a harder program just to scale, but uh, conceptually, it also helps with some sort of smaller, medium-sized uh, real estate footprints and being able to retrofit and add uh, positive uh, you know, solar panels or other sorts of upgrades to buildings to support this problem. And and how quickly is this market evolving, Dan? Do we do we see new types of instruments coming out pretty regularly at this point? There's no rule book at at, at this stage, so everyone's kind of willing to innovate. Uh, so long as they, you know, I'm really focused on the lending markets more than anything. So so long as they still think it's a strong credit profile. Um, which is good and bad, uh, to be frank. The, uh, the the good news is is some of these have grown into hundred billion dollar plus programs. Um, the bad news is because there's not necessarily market consensus on the products, it does create elevated greenwashing risk. Um, just to ensure, you know, people may be marketing certain products that actually don't have as strong of a benefit uh, as would be otherwise marketed. So, from the the, the financiers uh, financiers perspective, it really is important they have a strong program that defends the the lending products that they're creating, uh, particularly if they're out marketing them, uh, achieving certain benefits because that can create a lot of risk if it's not actually going to achieve those benefits. Well, uh, been a great conversation. I, I guess um, you know I'd love to finish up by just asking each of you final comments or suggestions or advice you have for our friends and our clients listening in as they think about attacking these issues in their real estate portfolios. Yeah, one, one thing I'd like to touch on briefly is around uh, decarbonization strategy. Uh, we help clients uh, with our ESG and real estate focus, uh, and commercial and industrial focus develop decarbonization strategies. So it starts with the data collection piece uh, that we've touched on a bit. So understanding uh, energy use per square foot, the cost per square foot, and then using that to establish goals. Uh, what, what are our goals? How far along the continuum, the curve from a decarbonization standpoint, and what is our timeline that we want to achieve? So once we have that, the, the decarbonization, kind of the metrics in place, we help our clients step through some key steps to then begin to uh, reduce their goals and create a strategy for implementation so that they capture both the ROI as well as the emissions reduction. One of the first thing clients ask us about is around site consolidation or location strategy. Dan mentioned that earlier. Uh, whenever we think about consolidation of, of a real estate footprint, that's great uh, for the owner or for the occupier because Every square foot that is reduced reduces that organization's 
emissions profile by, by 100% for that square footage. So thinking strategically about location and consolidation uh, can have far-ranging impacts, uh, including thinking about renewables and, and, and buildings with higher energy performance ratings. The second area we focus on is around operational cost reductions. So we know that buildings waste 30% of the energy that they purchase. And most of that waste comes from operational decisions. So we work with clients to develop strategies for uh, how to operate their buildings, um, especially with this uh, uh, post-COVID hybrid work environment, uh, using lighting and healing and heating and cooling during partial load or unoccupied times. We help clients think through uh, uh, equipment upgrades and retrofits. What kind of investment is going to be needed? What's the time horizon for the ROI? Um, things like lighting in an office can pay itself back really quickly, maybe in two years, where uh, HVAC systems can take 10 years or longer. And, and uh, you know, that may, may be beyond a, a client's hold period. So we have to be mindful of that as well. And then we cover things like on-site renewables and solar and, and financing and solar potential of a site. Uh, we need to be thinking about that. You know, a high-rise building may not be the ideal location for, uh, for solar, but a large campus environment uh, may be. So these are all, all decisions that we help our clients make. Uh, we have the modeling, the energy modeling, and the expertise, uh, and the track record, and then the peer comparisons to be able to bring all of that to our clients and help them make the right decisions as it comes to decarbonization, reducing emissions, as well as having that ROI in place. So maybe if I can add on the the you know what I, what I would tell the listeners, real estate really is it's an and you got to think about it as an and strategy. Um, and what I mean by that is, you know, the, the number one way in theory to cut your emissions is you could just reduce your footprint <laughs> for many of our right. clients. And while that will look good on paper, that actually doesn't solve the problem. We've got to, we've got to become more efficient with the square footage that we do use as well. Well, yeah, somebody buys that building, right? It, so the building hasn't gone away. It's just off of your books and records. It, it, exactly. And we can get to a bad answer that looks good at the individual, but bad at the macro level. So, so really, we need folks to think about this as an and strategy that says, you know, I won't use, real, you know, maybe I will remove real estate I don't need. It doesn't make sense for business purposes, but I'm going to improve upon the real estate that I do use and the efficiency that goes with it. And, and I'll just go, you know, to, to you know, put that out there. Oftentimes, real estate is the third largest expense uh, on your P&L or real estate related items. So it is commonly a material uh, element going back to that there's an ROI if you do this right. Well, between uh, <clears throat> federal compliance issues at the SEC state and local compliance issues like uh, the new local law, uh, as well as, as maybe most importantly, the, the capital markets rewarding and, and taking note of more efficient real estate portfolios. Lots to do in the sector. I guess <clears throat> that makes it easy to understand why uh, so many of these companies have pursued science-based targets. So many are doing voluntary reporting. And, and more importantly, so many are investing in the decarbonization of their portfolios. So uh, exciting time. Thank you all for the conversation. Uh, look forward to circling back with you perhaps after the SEC rules are issued to talk about some of the functional and tactical challenges your clients will face in meeting those, those requirements. And uh, uh, thank you for a great conversation. Love it. Thank you, Casey. Yeah, thank you for having us. This was great. That's our show for today. We'll have more of these industry-specific episodes for you in the coming weeks. And tomorrow, look for a special audio version of our recent publication, What's CSRD You Should Already Know? 
We're still planning our August Thursday hiatus, but wanted to squeeze in one more episode before we got started. And of course, tune in next Tuesday for the continuation of our Stock Comp Toolkit for the month of August. So that you never miss any of our audio content, follow the PwC Accounting Podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts. And have any feedback for us? Please feel free to reach out to me at heather.horn at pwc.com. I'd love to hear your feedback, show ideas, or anything else you'd like to share. From Thought Leadership at PwC, I'm Heather Horn. Thanks for tuning in. This podcast is brought to you by PwC, all rights reserved. PwC refers to the U.S. member firm or one of its subsidiaries or affiliates, and they sometimes refer to the PwC network. Each member firm is a separate legal entity. Please see www.pwc.com structure for further details. This podcast is for general information purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.